Hey gang, Noah here with a bit of a correction of of the episode uh, before we do the music. Uh, this came in uh, after we originally published. Um, so in the episode ahead, you're going to hear me refer to the film Hamlet in the Golden Vale as a documentary. It is not. Uh, I misspoke. A uh, bit of a confusion on my part. It is in fact a narrative feature. So it is a, a film adaptation of Hamlet. Uh, that happens in a golden veil. Um, just so there's no more confusion, I'm going to read the about section of the website for Hamlet in the Golden Veil uh, so we can hear about the production in the production company's own words. In the spring, Roll the Bones, a New York-based theater company specializing in large-scale immersive shows, took a team of Sleep No More and Sundance alums to a 500-year-old castle in County Tipperary, Ireland. Over the course of three weeks, a feature film emerged, the story of eight actors living in close quarters immersed in the world of Hamlet. In addition to the feature, the team also tackled a 360 virtual reality experience with production support from the National Theater's Immersive Storytelling Studio and two on-site immersive performances for the surrounding community. Out of this threefold creative endeavor comes an adaptation which lives at the intersection of and blurs the line between theater and cinema. The film is scheduled to premiere on the 2018 International Film Festival circuit. So, there we go. There is the official logline for Hamlet in the Golden Vale. And when you hear me call it a documentary, uh, know that I'm wrong. All right, there we go. Hey, Johnny, cue the music. Um, we, we, don't, we don't have a Johnny. I'm just going to have to do it myself. Okay. Hey gang, welcome to episode 137 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. This week on the show, Catherine Yu is going to sit down with Taylor Myers of Rolled Bones Theater Company uh, to talk about Hamlet in the Golden Vale, uh, a documentary feature that is coming up uh, about a show. About, about a production of Hamlet, an immersive production of Hamlet. Uh, more on that in a moment. First, uh, a couple of, couple of housekeeping things to talk to you about. Uh, number one, uh, while my back was turned today, today, yes, Friday, February 23rd, uh, 2018, uh, Everything Immersive, the Facebook group, which we founded along with uh, you know, some of our friends, um, it, uh, it passed 3,000 numbers. 3,000 people, 3,000 people, uh, super excited about that. Okay. If I wasn't tired all the time, I'd be super excited about that. It's been coming. I've been like watching the countdown and like the first, the first thousand, I was like, Oh my God. The second thousand, I was like, what? This thousand, I'm like, Oh yeah, that was coming. Uh, but still 3000 people. That's a lot. 3000 people from around the world. So, uh, thank you all for, uh, spreading the word on that. And indeed spreading the word on social media is something I want to talk to you about right now because we are gearing up for a major campaign in March. 
a Patreon campaign. Uh, yes, we have one, but uh, we don't get aggressive about it. We're going to get aggressive in March because there are more and more challenges that we're facing and we want to be ready for them. So what I want to talk to you about right now is if you aren't connected to us on social media or if you have friends who would kind of be into this stuff, now is the time to get connected to us on social media. Now is the time to um, help us share the word, share the word with your friends. Um, Part of this is because, uh, you know, the algorithms are making it harder to reach people. So um, as much as there's a reason why YouTubers at the end of every YouTube are all like, oh, remember to like and share and subscribe, subscribe, let me in, to the point where like small children like say it when they're just talking to their friends, right? Um, This is me doing my impression of a five-year-old. Remember to like and share and subscribe. Um, it is so vitally important if it is true. It is vitally important. I was, I was going to go on some, like, it's just, it's just, I'm not even getting into the explanation. Just please, please. Um, you know, we're on Twitter at no proscenium, you know, we're on Instagram at no underscore proscenium, you know, we're on Facebook, no proscenium. Facebook is the toughest nut to crack because of the way the algorithm's going. You know this. If you see an article you like, please share it. Share this podcast. Um, Sharing is so, so vitally important. Indeed, I can't be upset that people aren't sharing it all that much um, compared to the number of people who possibly get it because I know not that many people are reached. Facebook, as you well know, hits you up every time. It's like, you want more people to see this? Give me $5. Now, if you'd like to help out in a big way and you hear this and you're a Facebook user, contact us via Facebook and tell us, hey, I'd be willing to, you know, be tagged or hollered at via DM when you've got something you want to push out there. We won't use that for absolutely everything, but maybe once, twice a week, I'm literally making this up as I go along because that's who I am. Uh, Once, twice a week, we'd reach out and say, hey, squad. So it's kind of like a street team. It's like, we need this blasted out or we want this blasted out. And that's not going to be about the marketing messages around the Patreon campaign. That's about the content because the content is about the work and the work is what matters. We want to spread word about the work, but people can't find word about the work if they can't find the content. And they can't find the content because of the algorithm. And only you can prevent forest, I mean, can fight algorithms. Look, man, this is like some Skynet level shit here. And we're like all in it because algorithms, they're the terminate. Oh, wrong podcast. Sorry. Uh, I, I got, I, I got an episode with Kent by on his AI podcast, no, joking, joking. Although you should probably check out uh, his AI podcast. I need to. Um, okay. <laughs> Where was I? Oh yeah. Facebook, no proscenium. Please, please, please let us know if you can help out. We would very much appreciate the boost as we go. Um, there's a bunch of fun stuff to talk about on the back end. Well, there's some fun stuff to talk about on the back end. Uh, one more thing I want to do before I set up the interview, which is what we always do, which is thank everybody for joining us on the Patreon. It is so, so vitally important. Um, I keep on saying that. It's vitally important. I'm getting really serious about it this year. Um, 
Kelly Ann Glaubig is our latest backer. Um, we have well over 100 backers now. Uh, next month, we're going to campaign to double everything, uh, which is going to be intense. So get ready for that. And we're calling upon all of you to help us do that. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, a dollar a month, $5 a month. These things are incredibly helpful. If those 3,000 people who are on Everything Immersive, and this is completely impractical, if they all threw in $5 a month, we'd have a budget of $15,000 a month, which would not be a small budget for a media organization run by a few people. That's my dream right there. I know, it's a crazy, crazy dream. And this is some niche, niche, niche media. That's why we can have an outsized effect. And you know that the team who makes this stuff is amazing. Anyway, I'm going to stop. Get me going here. Stop me. Facebook.com slash no proscenium. As always, the sustaining backers are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, Yan Budman, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurstan, and Lonnie Hansen. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, all right. Let's get into the setup for the episode. So... This is going to be one of those listen-alongs, um, although I, I will admit to you what's going to happen after, like, you're going to listen to it, and then you're going to hear me go, like, all, thank you for this, and, like, I will not have, like, had a chance to consume it yet. So, spoiler alert, uh, when you listen to it is when I'm listening to it, right? So, I'm, I'm listening to it this weekend, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I do that. I do that with Zays all the time, too. Um, when I'm not the host, I have no idea what's going on. It's fun. We get to learn together because uh, there's not enough time for me to do the other thing. Um, so with that in mind, here are the notes that I have about Taylor Myers and Hamlet in the Golden Veil. So this Hamlet in, Gold, in the Golden Veil is a, like I mentioned, documentary feature that is making the rounds on the International Film Festival circuit this year. Um, they, let's, let's read you a very, 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 very quick description of this. So in the spring, a New York based theater company specializing in large scale immersive shows took a team of sleep no more and Sundance alums to a 500 year old castle in County Tipperary, Ireland. And over the course of three weeks, a feature film emerged the story of eight actors living in close quarters, immersed in the world of Hamlet. All right. So there you go. That's what Hamlet in the Golden Veil is about. And the company that did this is Roll the Bones, which was founded in 2012 by Taylor Myers and Rosalie Lowe after they met on Punch Drunk's Sleep No More. Taylor has uh, been in a bunch of stuff. Let me get you Catherine's notes. Um, he's not just Sleep No More, but Then She Fell, Grand Paradise. He's been Paul involved in Path of Beatrice and Paradiso. Uh, he's he's gotten his hands dirty deep, deep, deep in the immersive world that we love so much. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing Hamlet in the Golden Veil, and hopefully we'll be able to get get a copy and watch and etc. So we're keeping our eyes out for that. This right here is your little slice, your little window into this world, and um, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I am Taylor Myers. I am the artistic director of Roll the Bones Theatre Company and um, immersive theatre maker of, of well, in, in a couple different ways. 
So how did you first get involved in the immersive scene? Um, the very first moment was right after school. Uh, I went to NYU for a couple years, ran out of money, um, had to stop going. Was looking for auditions, as a young actor does. Found an audition on a website for Sleep No More that was looking for older dancers. Uh, and I submitted <laughs> myself to that. I don't know why. Um, older dancers. Older dancers. Were, uh, a young actor. I see. <laughs> so I, uh, I had heard of Sleep No More in class, actually. Um, and I mean, at that point, you know, just submitting for everything possible. So they were like in the in the subject line, right? You know, older dancer. And so I wrote younger actor. And I was like, I know I'm not what you're looking for, but if I'm what you're looking for, I'd love to come in. Uh, and they were totally holding auditions. So I went in and um, had an amazing, amazing time. I'd never, I'd never seen the space before. I'd never seen the show. I went in. My first experience there at all was like signing up for my audition, um, wondering where on earth I had just walked into. Uh, and then ended up being offered a job there. And they asked if I'd seen the show yet. And I told them I hadn't. So they said to come on by that night and see it. And uh, in one fell swoop, my whole world cracked open. That is a crazy story. So before submitting for an audition, what did you know? About immersive theater? And just the McKittrick Hotel, Sleep No More in So little. Uh, I think the only bit of information that I really remember having from before that was literally reading about it in a textbook uh, in a theater studies class like a year before, maybe two years before, um, and hearing a little bit of information about it from the professor who I vaguely remember was talking about the Boston performance of it and saying that it was like coming to New York or had just come to New York. Um, and I, I just remember, I remember someone saying that there was like a room with a bathtub in it. And I remember someone saying that like, uh, that performers run through the space and move through the space. So like you can see people like moving through a hallway, like so little information. Yeah. That was it. That was, was it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the audition like? Were you with a bunch of people with dance backgrounds? Yeah, totally. And that has actually been my experience for uh, uh, auditioning for most of the immersive work that I've auditioned for, for companies outside of my own. Um, a lot of it is dance-based. Uh, a lot of the immersive work, the large-scale immersive work in New York that's being made right now is, is dance-based. Um, so yes, the audition was namely dancers um but but again like the the work has so many different things that go into it there are so many different kinds of performance that coalesce into exactly what it is the work that is done uh so yes there's dance yes there's acting there's also a lot of like person to person um human understanding that has to take place. Um, so, and, and I mean, punch drunk are masters. And so they're looking at, at all sorts of stuff. So did you feel prepared? Uh, no, but I did feel fine. So you're comfortable with what they were asking you to do? Yeah, it was, it was like, you know, when, when, when you are doing something that is new 
but feels really good. It, like sometimes it feels, even in performance, sometimes it feels like flying, right? You're like taking one step out into thin air and another step out into thin air. And then, you know, if you're staying up there, it's, it's fun. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So did they help you a lot in the rehearsals? Like how do you practice or train to perform in one of these shows? There are so many ways, uh, and it also depends on like what you're what you're working on most. So, for instance, if you're most of most of like the heaviest dancing roles I've done have been with third rail, and so a lot of the the movement work that I have done has come from that company. Uh, the role that I played almost exclusively at Sleep No More had very very little movement to it. It was almost all like acting performance. So like that was a world that I felt super comfortable in. Yes, you moved, but it wasn't so choreography heavy. Whereas like some of the stuff that I did in Grand Paradise or some of the stuff that I do in Then She Fell Now um, is much more physical. So what roles do you play in the, have you played in those three shows? Um, in Sleep No More, I played the orderly in the psych ward. Uh, in the Grand Paradise, I played the activities director, the hustler, and the libertine. And in Then She Fell, I currently play Lewis Carroll in the Mad Hatter. That is quite a range. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's been a really good time. So how much can you talk about what the orderly does? Very little. Okay. Yeah. But he's found in the psych ward. Uh-huh. And he has a lot of, I guess, uh, interaction with audience members. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And that, that you know, talking about like what kind of training you get, right? So the role that I played did uh, a lot, an extraordinary amount of one-on-ones. Um, and um, to have that happen, I was in that show for two years, to do that same little segment of performance so many times a night, so many nights a week, so many How many weeks. do you think you did these <sighs> ones? Thousands. Mm-hmm. Truly thousands. And it was literally the same scene thousands of times. I mean, it changed a little bit as, as like, as, you know, as the show will change a little bit. Um, sometimes they rework stuff, but uh, pretty much. And that was an amazing, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, experience for me because... I mean, because, like I said, there are so many different things that go into this kind of performance. You know, there's acting, there's dance, there's this kind of energetic transfer that happens between people. That was really cutting my teeth on what that is and starting to understand how much information you can get from someone in an instant, how much information you can pick up from someone based on just the sounds of their footfalls or or how quickly they're moving. Um, and... and, and th- I don't know if there's a way to train for that except experience and experimentation and like really listening to it. Like you can do all sorts of stuff in the real world if you know what to listen for, but like to know what to listen for, you have to really like tune into it first. So they cast you in this role as the orderly and then when they explained to you what the role entailed, what was your reaction when you realized you would be doing, like, such heavy audience interaction? Well, first they asked me to be a bellhop for um, the restaurant that they were opening, uh, the Heath. So that was, I mean, 
tons of audience interaction as well in a very different way, much more improvisational. Um, and then not long after that, also starting to do the orderly in a way that was not really improvisational at all. Reactionary, of course, because it all is, but, but, but very much strictly choreographed. Um, it's all like, it's stretching, you know? It's a fun game to play, and sometimes the game gets really hard, and then you learn more about it, and then the game gets easier, and then you learn more about it, and then it gets harder again, and then, you know, like like anything new. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Um, the repetitive nature of what some of this work can be. And that can be... That can be draining. And that's something that like that you continue to engage with no matter what show you're doing. Especially because a lot of you know, a lot of these shows have so much repetition. And sometimes you'll be doing two shows, you know, eventually Fell runs two shows a week, six days a week. Nobody does all twelve of them, but every time you go in to do a show, you're doing a double. Whereas, like, pretty much every other show will run eight, nine shows a week if you're sleep no more. But otherwise, you're, like, you go and you do a show, right? Mm -hmm. But to go in and do two every night or to go in and do a show that has multiple loops or to go in and, you know, whatever it is, there is a certain level of endurance and stamina and attention uh, and meditation and, you know, whatever. There are a, a million different ways to think about it and to look at look at it and, and keep it alive and keep it real, but definitely a hurdle to overcome the first time you start to engage with it. Do you have certain audience interactions that stand out after they happen? Totally. Yeah. Some of them are, are, are hilarious. Some of them are so sweet. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are just people who are wildly present. Um, yeah. Yeah, some some people, some moments are, are extraordinarily memorable. Do you feel like you've learned a lot in terms of how to guide someone kind of into an interaction or manage what's happening? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the, I mean, with anything, the more experience you have, the, the, the more you know about it. So at least the more familiar with it you are. Uh, whether or not it gets easier, it definitely gets more familiar. But having looked at it in from a, a variety of different standpoints, both as a dancer and an actor and a director who creates this work, there are so many different components that go into any singular audience interaction that um, that to have kind of a an, an a multi perspective eye on it can be very helpful to know exactly why something happened. Because sometimes it'll be the way that you approach somebody and you'll know that you'll realize that and you'll have done it wrong or you'll have done it right or something will happen and it will be feedback for you to know like, Oh, this moment really worked or Ooh, Ooh, I know exactly how I screwed that up. Sometimes it will have nothing to do with you and it will be the like, the mechanical setup of the show is such that you are left with a person who like doesn't want to be there and you have to give them a one-on-one -on -one because they're the person that you ended up with and you never would have chosen them in a million years, but they're who you got. So yeah, knowing, knowing that there are so many things that go into any moment and like being able to really diagnose which is responsible for what occurrence. Do you have a favorite memory about being in each of these different productions? 
Specifically from performance? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, lots of funny stories, certainly, from like... I mean, you put people into crazy scenarios and like funny things are bound to happen. Uh, I think perhaps one of my favorite from Sleep No More was doing performing a one-on-one for uh, a woman with a woman who was very very tentative the whole time the moment that it started it was so clear that she was like she was coming right up to the edge of her comfort zone from the moment that she got there and uh this is not a funny story this is a, a sweet story but um uh but she wanted she really wanted to be there she really wanted to go for it and so you can recognize that in someone and you have to say that's okay. That's totally fine. Wherever you are, I'm going to come, I'm going to stand right next to you and, and, and maybe we can take a step together. And she totally wanted to, she just really needed to like hold on really tightly. So we go through the entire process and she like at some point is, is like crying. It's like very, you know, totally still totally on edge. I really like, I really have her. I'm totally taking care of her and letting her know that I'm not going to strand her. The point is not for me to terrify her or anything like that, but rather to like move through this thing together. And she's totally there. She's totally present the entire time. And the end of it comes and like, you can see that she has like released something very real. And so we like have a moment, we say our goodbye and then she goes on to see the rest of the show. Uh, And that was a moving experience for me because to have someone who is like, who has these barriers, who has these boundaries, is coming up against her comfort zone and also is so willing to move through that and to open herself up to this experience. What a beautiful audience member. What a beautiful thing to share with somebody. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. It feels like maybe in that scenario, it's actually hard to end your time together, just say goodbye and kind of push them back out into the show. Yeah, yeah, it can be, but it also is like, the experience completes itself. Like, what are we going to do afterwards? Like, like, right. kick like, it? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like the, it, the it, moment's over. Yeah. And so it can, it can have a really nice lingering moment at the end where, like, you say energetically, like, this connection is real, this connection remains, and goodbye. Has anything else surprised you about doing this kind of work? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it surprises me how much peop- how honest people are with their behavior and how um, uh, concealed some people think they are, but generally they are not. Does that make sense? Yeah, so they think they're hiding some sort of emotion or concern and you so it sounds like you've really learned to read like body language and facial expression and stuff like that yeah 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 um and and you don't always know the reason right like i can't necessarily read your mind or your experiences or why you are the way you are but i can see the way that you are you know what i mean that like that is so much a part of this work is like listening with everything, listening with like all sorts of different radars that like a person might not not even know they have and 
taking in as much information from someone as possible so that you can accurately create an experience for them that is like that is so perfectly tailored to them. If you don't do a good job of listening to that, then you're creating something that is more of like a one size fits all experience. But the point of, of like one of the transcendent parts of this work is that it is not one size fits all. It is it is it is that true connection between people. And like and to do that, you have to actually understand somebody. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Totally agree. So you were at Sleep No More for how long? For two years. And then how did you get involved with the folks at Third Rail? Um, <clears throat> they were building Grand Paradise. I had a lot of friends who were a part of the creation of that show um, that I knew from Sleep No More, that I knew from other work that I had directed or... I mean, the immersive community is a small community. So I knew a lot of people there. I knew a lot of people who had been in Then She Fell. Um, and they were holding auditions. And a couple friends were like, I mean, come on by. Like, do the, do, do, it'd be fun to have you here. Like, come on and, and audition for this thing. And I, I kind of quit auditioning a while before that. I just, I hated it. So I stopped doing it. Um, and, uh, but it was an opportunity that was like, I mean, immersive auditions are fun. That's like, actually like, it's a party as opposed to like going into, you know, wherever you're going to go into for to audition for a Broadway show, you go to Pearl studios and like wait outside for 45 minutes and get called in. And like, you know, it's just like, Why do that's you, a drag. Yeah. So that's more like a machine. Why is an immersive audition more like a party? Well, because, uh, they're run differently because you're auditioning for something different, right? Because there are so many other things to look at. Um, and so like generally you'll go in and like do some movement and do some experiments and like play some games and do some exercises. And there's so much more real, um, connectivity to be had and like room for something fun to like happen as opposed to like going in and doing a monologue or singing a song which can also be really fun but like you're creating everything there whereas like for an immersive an immersive audition you can go in and like have whatever you they've asked you to prepare but also know that you're going to be there for like an hour or two like doing stuff that's really fun in a space in a cool space you know so I went in and I auditioned had a really good time and then ended up getting cast as the hustler. And then after a couple of weeks, they were like, actually, we'd like you to learn this other role too that I ended up doing more of. And then after a couple more weeks, they asked me to learn another role. And just as like, as <clears throat> casts shift and shift and availability shifts and stuff, I was able to like pick up a lot more stuff. Yeah, it was really fun. Actually, the the last role that they asked me to learn was a role that when I saw the show for the first time before I'd even auditioned, I, I was like, all right, well, if I ever do this show, I, I know for sure I'm not doing that role. Like, that's the, that's the, the danciest role that I can see here. So the one you didn't want. Well, I, not that I didn't want it, but just, like, I knew the guy who made it. He's an incredible dancer. Oh, my God. His name's Jeff Lyons. He's, he's out of this world. Um, and he, uh, sorry, Jeff Lyon. There's a Jeff Lyon and a Jonathan Lyons, and they always, I always get their last names wrong. But it's Jeff Lyon, um, and he created this role called the Libertine, uh, and and he's just like he's so much more a dancer than he is an actor. Not that he's he's an amazing actor as well. Regardless, whatever. He I saw the like show. Owned it. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. And so I saw the show, and I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm not gonna. 
I can't do that shit. Right. You're like, I can't compete with him. Right, right. Come on. I'm an actor. Um, and then they asked me to do it, and, and uh, I had such fun. I had such fun doing that. I'm really grateful for that opportunity from them. Third Rails really has, been, has treated me very, very well in allowing me to like experiment with things that I otherwise wouldn't have done. Yeah. Was it different kind of being... Um, I mean, the orderly kind of lives in his own world, whereas in Grand Paradise, it's a bunch of people in different rooms, and the, like for a good chunk of it, the, the audience is free to move around. So mm. how was that different for you? There, I mean... There are a lot of things that change when you add more people to a space. Um, there are so many brains that have to operate simultaneously to like to do this stuff properly. At least that's how it happens to me. Um, and and people behave totally differently. Uh, audience members behave totally differently in in every scenario. Um, so you go from like doing a lot of one on ones where it's very easy for you to like to take control of a scene and to be like you're the only thing there right so like it's very much an experience between two people you go to the grand paradise and there are 60 audience members maybe you're doing a scene with another performer and there are 25 people watching you that's much more performative in terms of like proscenium versus interaction um but then there's also like how do you how do you herd a group? Uh, one of my very dear friends, another performer who's worked with Third Rail for a long time, her name is Rebecca Morin. She used to work with a company called Equus Projects that did uh, dances with horses, and so she knows all of these amazing things about herd mentality, what animals do, how they behave, and people do the same things. Not exactly, but like very similarly. So you start to pick up on cues in the same way that you would pick up on like what's going on exactly with one person. You start to be like, oh, this is, this is how you drag a group of people into a space without them knowing that that's what you're doing. This is how you open up a room to make it available for people to leave. Like if I stand here as opposed to there, people come in and watch it. And if I don't, then no one even enters the door, mm-hmm. right? And so like listening to all of this stuff and like receiving cues from a group of people as opposed to one person. Yeah, that sounds really interesting because you were going from that like one-on-one to now you're just one performer and people can move around and do whatever. Um, what about the other show for Third Rail that you've been in, Then She Fell? How did you end up there? Um, Grand Paradise closed, wow, almost a year ago exactly. Uh, New Year's Eve last yeah. year. Um, and not long after they asked me if I... Not long after, not long before, I don't know, right around then, they asked me if I had interest in learning the Mad Hatter. And I told them I did. And that was that. Had you you'd seen Then She Fell at that point? No. Oh, no, okay. I don't think I had. No, I hadn't. So how did you approach going from uh, some hustler, libertine character to this, I mean, pretty iconic mm. like character from... A lot of people's childhoods. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a huge story, but you can't bear the weight of the history of Lewis Carroll's work in every moment, right? It'd be it'd be crushing. So you just do the job that you can do. Um, I'm an actor, and that means that I play all sorts of different roles. 
evidenced by the fact that I also play Lewis Carroll, who performatively is wildly different from the Mad Hatter. But it's not necessarily any easier or more difficult based on the idea of a role. The question is, do you connect with it? And yeah, it was very easy for me to connect with with the Mad Hatter. Did you feel like uh, that was, I don't know, a return to form because you get a lot smaller groups, maybe one-on-one or two people in the same room with you? Did that feel more familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. Kind of, but it is also, it is so specific. It is so specific. And so, like, while at Sleep No More I was doing a lot of one-on-ones, the audience is also so much bigger. The space is so much bigger. And I, like, my original familiarity with immersive work as a whole was a much, much, much larger scale piece. And then Grand Paradise is much smaller scale, even though, like, on a moment-to-moment basis, I was probably dealing with more people. But the piece itself is much smaller. And then She Fell is even smaller than Grand Paradise. So, kind of a mix of everything, right? If, if, you, look at, if you look at audience experience in terms of a spectrum, and on one side, there is kind of the sleep no more experience wherein an audience member has complete autonomy, anonymity, and is a part of a very large group with lots to explore. And then on the other side of the spectrum is like Then She Fell, where it's a very small audience. There is no anonymity, and there's pretty much no autonomy either. It's a very guided experience. Then Grand Paradise was somewhere in the middle. The work that I make is somewhere in the middle. But there are, I mean, as long as you understand where you are on that spectrum, then it's just kind of you know, figuring out every moment. And then you're also somehow involved with the Paradiso Escape Room mm-hmm. and Michael Count's projects. Can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I know Michael because I know William Pop, who I was in, with whom I was in Sleep More. And uh, William... Amazingly, I was so fresh there. I was so new. And it was the first time I had met him. And we were meeting, I don't know, I think we were in the Mandalay or something. We were both leaving the building one day. And he was like, hey, who are you? We started talking. And he was like, all right, I'm doing this, uh, doing this cabaret. You want to you you do it? Like literally the first time I met him. I was like, yeah, man, I just want to be involved. Um, <clears throat> so, so he was like, all right, come up with a character and write, you know, come up with a thing. And so I came up with this ridiculous thing, and we ended up doing so many of these cabarets together. He played a, a character named Calloway. And so we started these things called the Calloway Cabaret. Uh, and and he was the star of the show, and I played this German man-boy named Hans, and would happen like once a month after Sleep No More in the Mandalay. And uh, William is very close with Michael and Sharon Counts, um, and Sharon eventually started to direct them. And I met Michael multiple times at William's wedding and, you know, all these different things. Um, and he knew of, of the work that I had done. And so as he was working on Paradiso, it had gotten up and running. Uh, and they were looking for somebody to come in and, like, help bolster this this thing, kind of the narrative aspect of it, the, the theatrical aspect of it. Um, and so he asked me to come in as a co-director and... and do some work on it. Had you ever worked on escape rooms? Is that 
an interest of yours? Not. Uh, I had never done any. Um, I'd never gone to one. I'd never worked on any. Um, I love puzzles. I love ciphers. I, I mean, the, you create an immersive show and like, what are you doing? It's like, well, you're doing a really long math problem as well as like a huge artistic output. Um, but in terms of like creating how the thing functions, you're doing a really long math problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, adding some of that work in there was, was, was fun to me too. <laughs> One of the things I did uh, that like had to be fine tuned was like add a bunch of puzzles that thrilled me and it, Turned out that they were too hard. <laughs> like the success rate of the of the escape room like plummeted. Like no one was winning. I see. So it was. It's all your fault. Well, yeah, <laughs> it was. It was my fault for a time. And so then we were like, all right, these puzzles are not. They're not working. I mean, they're working. It's making it so that like ten percent of people are succeeding. But like, is that the audience experience that we want? Is that what people are looking for? Is that what they go to an escape room for? Like, perhaps if we were marketing it as, like, the hardest escape room you've ever done, then maybe that's what we would have gone for. But, like, it wasn't, that wasn't the marketing. Right, so we, right. we, had to, we had to lighten up the load. <laughs> it about, was a lot of math. Yeah. Um, and then, so, I've talked a little bit on the No Proscenium site, as well as the podcast, about the alternate reality add-on to Paradiso, mm-hmm. The Path of Beatrice. Mm-hmm. So, alternate reality games, is that an interest of yours? Uh, in a way, Path of Beatrice was actually um, an idea that I came up with. Uh, oh, wow. That I spoke to Michael about at length. I mean, we were basically, the, we, were, we were kicking around, like, how can we level this thing up? How can we amp this thing up? Um, and a friend of mine who was a stage manager uh, at Sleep No More and who stage managed multiple Roll the Bones shows, um, her name's Mackenzie Ames, she's a genie, um, had shared a documentary with me called The Institute. Have you heard of it? No. What is that? Uh, It is a documentary uh, about a company. Company? Organization? Something. Something. An institute (laughs) in San Francisco that was essentially a gigantic alternate reality game that just spiraled into this crazy world. This total world that was like self-breeding, self-creating, happening for months, perhaps even years. I can't quite remember. It might've been as long as like a two year experience. Um, and these people who like joined the Institute, some of whom may or may not have believed it was a complete reality. Some of whom totally knew that it was a game that they were playing, whatever. Um, fascinating. And so I had this idea to like break Paradiso out of the walls that it was currently in. And I mean, the whole thing is like wrapped in this idea of like, what is real, what isn't real. And so if you push that farther and you start to create things where, where like, it's tough because, because you have to create a web that is strong enough where an audience member can poke it and not find a hole. Because if they do find a hole, then the whole thing shatters. The whole thing crumbles. But if you're able to create a web that has strong enough anchor points at the points where people are going to poke so that when they do the research, they find stuff and then they do more research and they find more stuff and then they like get a text message and meet somebody somewhere and like the performance is good enough that they believe it, then they actually start to wonder like, shit, how deep does this go? Like how real is this world? How strong is this creation? Um, And so that was really fun too. 
Yeah, so I've actually done the experience. You have. And some friends of mine have. And when we compared notes, we had wildly varying things happen to us. Yeah, good. So, <laughs> uh, Did you do it all as part of one group who bought the experience together? Or like you did it and then they did it like weeks or months later? So I did it in July of this past year. And then I want to say they did it a few months later. And I did it as an add-on to the first chapter of Paradiso, uh-huh. and they did it as an add-on to the second chapter. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. So is, has this been part of your master plan to have, I don't know, can you even say how many different variants of the Path of Beatrice? Uh, uh, unlimited. There is no end. Why would there be? You can create anything. So... To run a, you know, to run a structure, there is something that is realistic, um, but like, you can swap in or out. Once you have a body, you can swap in or out any any one of those body parts, and it becomes something totally different, right? Say you've got a body that exists of two legs, two arms, a torso, and a head, and like you put a new head on, and a new arm on, and a new leg on, and all of a sudden it's a completely different person, but like the body remains, right? So, and you can have innumerable arms or legs or heads or torsos. Kind of morbid, but yes. Uh, <laughs> was that, uh, was that morbid? Sorry about that. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's the, um, the exquisite corpse idea. Sure. Where there's interchangeable parts. And then in terms of having the participant actually meet up with actors in real life spaces, where did that come from? Um... So one of the things that I love most about creating this work from a directorial perspective is that rules are a farce. They don't exist. And you can do anything. And people are thrilled by that. And when you break rules or you show them that there aren't rules, people get so excited It's so much fun. It's part of the fun about like going into any immersive show and seeing people behave in ways that you aren't used to seeing people behave. That's why watching someone dance over a pool table or up in some cabinets or like all over the place, even in a living room, is like exciting because that's not how people behave in a living room. So you take the rules the general societal rules of like, that's a couch, you sit on it, and you're like, no, 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 that's not what you do with a couch. You have a like a minute and a half duet where people are flipping around and like jumping over the couch and flipping the couch over and going underneath it. And then people are like, oh, this is fun. This is exciting. And that's like, that's just like one rule that you can start to like dismantle. And then if you start to dismantle other ones, bigger ones, where you're they're like, oh, okay, like the experience starts here and ends here. And you're like, no, it doesn't. The experience starts before you realize the experience started. It started actually two days ago. That guy that bumped into you actually like slipped a letter into your pocket. Or uh, the meeting that you met up with when you like met up with somebody, you were actually being trailed by another person who then went and like took a photo of the two of you guys together. And then you got that emailed to you like three days later. And then like, that's the web that you're building, right? Because then they're like, shit, how big is it? How big is this world? Is this world that world? That world being the world that I thought that I was living in? Where is the line? And so you just keep creating something that is like 
bigger. And that is like that, that's not necessarily like the mission of what I want to do, but it's a beautiful experiment. It's really fun. It's really fun to like tear those walls down a little bit. I mean, that's what we're doing, right? We're breaking the fourth wall. Why not break the fifth wall and the sixth wall and the seventh wall and the eighth wall? Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because we talked about how with Punch Drunk and Third Rail, you were kind of in these larger scale things and then getting more and more intimate. And to me, it sounds like in some of your personal work, you're actually breaking those rules and doing big experimental large scale stuff. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your own company. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, there's nothing realer than the world that we are in, right? There's nothing realer than the moon or the sun or the sky or the air that we breathe. Like it is so innate to our understanding of what it is to exist that to use those things is so powerful so powerful. So like, for instance, and like, I'll give you a couple examples of like breaking down walls of worlds. Um, we did a show, we did and then there were none at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. No audience members knew where the show was. Tickets were available based on seven different ticket tiers ranging from $25 to $175 with the description, a very, very vague description of why you should buy that ticket. One of them was, you know, for those with a need for speed. One of them was for those who uh, feel connected to God, for those, you know, whatever, right? Like a tiny little blurb. And that was actually correlating to a character. That, no one knew that, but it, it was. So you bought your ticket. And with your confirmation email, you were given certain instructions. Before you bought your ticket, it said, make sure you're available an hour before the start time. Uh, starting locations will be below 59th Street in Manhattan. And so then you got an email that said, look for the man in the green jacket at 1107 on the corner of 16th Street and 7th Avenue, um, period. Uh, or meet this guy here, meet this woman here, all these different things, right? And so depending which ticket you bought, you had a different starting location, you had a different performer or performers that you were meeting up with to follow up to this undisclosed show location, and you got a different uh, gift as well. So the cheapest ticket or the, the most available ticket was the $25 one. You took the subway up, you got uh, like a time-stamped postcard um, from the year 1929 when this play took place, the, the very date that you were there, um, just, you know, decades in the past, and you rode the train up. The most expensive ticket you ended up with a personalized flask of whiskey. It was you and one other audience member and a performer taking a limo up the West Side Highway. And everybody got there at the same time. The gates opened up. You walked up with lanterns up to this big chapel house in the middle of the cemetery, and then the show started. Um, so, like, you can have experiences that, that start before or after anything. Um, we did a show. And, and, and when you're taking an audience member from the world that they are in and you're bringing them to the world that they're going to, there's, like, a, there's a, an acclimation process that an audience member has to go through before they believe it. You can't just, like, zap somebody out of New York 2017 and zap them into... The, right. an island off the coast of Devon 
1929, you have to like, you have to get them there. You have to transport them some way. And so we used literal transportation for that. And then you like walk up to the cemetery and like technology doesn't really exist. There are no lights on in the cemetery. There's just the moon glowing overhead and this big house on a hill in the middle that's lit up from the inside. It's like, how much more real can you get? The air is cold. The moon is right there. Those are the stars. That's not a set piece. That's as real as it gets. Um, we did a show recently. We did a, a production of Hamlet in a castle in Ireland. That was three different projects all put into one. In the immersive show we did, we had 50 audience members a night. We only did a couple shows. Um, and same thing. Like You drive out into rural Tipperary County in Ireland. You're in this fertile valley in between a bunch, seven different mountain ranges, which you can see. You drive up to a castle on a hill. You can see it from like a couple miles away. You get there. You park your car. You walk in. A beautiful sunset is happening. It's a f- over 500-year-old castle. It's like, it's just, it's just real. It isn't, there is no pretense at all. And that is what thrills me about this work is that like you eliminate all of the pretense, you put someone into, into a space and you say, this is real. Like, you don't believe me, believe me, like open the drawers, like open the fridge, there's food in it. Eat some if you want it, you know? So, yeah. So just to back up a second. (laughs) Sorry. Got on one there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we talked about you being in Sleep No More, Grand Paradise, then you fell, your work with Paradiso and the Path of Beatrice. Mm -hmm. And then what was the show in the cemetery called? Uh, And then there were none by Agatha Christie. And then if I recall correctly, you also did a show at the crack of dawn somewhere. Mm -hmm. It was a checkoff. It was. We did the seagull. Yeah. That was the first show we did. And then somehow you wound up in Ireland Mm -hmm. in a castle. How how does that happen? (laughs) (laughs) With an idea. With an idea. It always happens with an idea. Um, Nothing more powerful than a good idea. Uh, A friend had been traveling Europe, came back, was showing me pictures, showed me some photos of this castle that he stayed at in Ireland, had an amazing time. It was very affordable. I realized that it was probably more affordable to like ship a bunch of people to Ireland and rent a castle there than it would be to rent a big space in New York, which was true which was literally true. Uh, And so I asked for the contact information of the owner of the castle, got in touch with him. He told me that the rate that Jake had stayed there for was kind of um, a temporary rate because he had just opened it up on Airbnb. He was trying to get a bunch of people in, a bunch of reviews, um, and then like actually put it at the rate that it was worth, which was much more expensive. But the kind of guy who owns a 500-year-old Tudor-style castle in the middle of Ireland, likes Shakespeare, believe it or not. So, <laughs> so you say, Cecil, we have this crazy idea to do a, a multifaceted production of Hamlet in Ireland. You can invite all of your friends if you want. It will be the craziest thing they've ever seen. Um, but we need a really good rate. And Cecil, wonderful Cecil, says, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. An idea. All it so, needs is an idea. So you rounded up your best friends and colleagues and shipped them off to Ireland for a weekend? 
not, not quite. Um, that's how the idea, you know, started. Originally, originally, immediately, it was going to be an artistic experiment. It was going to be me rounding up my best friends and colleagues and saying, what if we go there and we live there for two weeks and we don't have any audience? We just experiment with the idea of like, we learn Hamlet and then we go there for two weeks and we just live in this world. Of course, it costs so much money to do that. And like, if it's just output and no input, then like, you know, whatever. People are never going to go for that. So then that changed very quickly into a movie, but Roll the Bones makes immersive work. So also an immersive show. And then we also ended up doing a virtual reality piece that we worked on with the National Theatre in London. Google was beautifully uh, um, generous in their support and uh, a company called VR City as well in making this VR project happen. So we ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff while we were there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I think I forgot the question. No, no, let's go. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're doing Hamlet, mm-hmm. you're in this beautiful castle yeah. So, After months, months of rehearsal and planning and, oh. and, you know, auditions and getting this whole thing set up, arranged properly, as opposed to, like, let's all ship off and, like, have a nice time. Um, yeah, mo- like, I think six months of rehearsal here beforehand. So was it the full Hamlet? Did you edit it down? Did you try to introduce loops? Like, how, how does that work? Right, right, right. Um, full Hamlet. Uh, Which is long. <laughs> yeah, it's a four and a half hour play. Um, so we, uh, Dan Hassey, uh, my co-director and the person who did the adaptation for the screenplay, um, has, has a Shakespeare company of his own, uh, called Shakespeare in the Square that he started years ago with a woman named Rose Bachner. Um, Yuri Pavlish, who's an incredible producer who works with Roll the Bones a lot, is also the executive director of Shakespeare in the Square. So it's a lot of people who also, that I work with who do a lot of Shakespeare as well. Um, and so Dan made the cut. Um, got it down to about two hours, which is how long the film is. Um, and we used his adaptation for the text for the immersive show, but with an immersive show, especially if you're like immersifying an existing piece of work, Hamlet is not an immersive show, right? So like you take Gertrude, for instance, and say she's in scene four and scene eight, you have to come up with what she does for scenes five, six, and seven. So you take context clues from scene eight and you say, okay, like, what is Gertrude saying in scene eight? Oh, she's telling us about the shit she just did for the past three scenes. You're like, oh, easy. So then we'll just like make those scenes actually happen instead of just hearing them. So then you have like two or three different ways for an audience member to experience it. So even if they didn't see her, see Ophelia drown, they might in the next scene hear her describe her seeing Ophelia drown. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they don't at all. Maybe they just go see Ophelia drowned. You know what I mean? So then you take, you take kind of, well, I take what is the core plot, the core text, and then expand it out into a web that is, you know, everyone on stage always. So now you've made this immersive show, Hmm. your version of Hamlet. How does the film play into that? Like, what's the relationship? An interesting one. Um, The film itself is a pretty faithful two-hour cut of Hamlet. Um, That said, the one thing that is slightly different about it is that there is a B-plot as well. Uh, The B-plot being kind of the introduction into the world and the exit out of the world, uh, that of eight actors showing up at a castle. Kind of the original idea, which is 
these actors show up in this castle and live in this world. So that's kind of the meta story of the film. So at the beginning, you see uh, eight performers in modern dress driving in a van show up at this castle, and then they transform into the world of Hamlet. And then you're reminded of those of those B plots kind of throughout where you get to see people in in modern behavior or modern clothing. Um, but it in in that way is is kind of an ode to performance and stagecraft and what it is to like to be on stage or off stage in character, out of character, living in this space in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it might actually have a lot of similarities with documentary. Mm. Like, you know, the classic shot of the cameraman is following the band as they get on stage. Right. Like, for your purposes, it was an immersive show. Mm -hmm. And here's the cast and crew all arriving. Yeah. So are you trying to replicate an audience member's experience with the camera? No. No, not at all. Uh, It's a completely different project. Same thing with the VR. I would actually say that the immersive show and the VR have more to do with each other than necessarily the film. Is that true? Probably. Experientially, yes. Um, Because to choreograph or direct a virtual reality piece, especially if you're going to do a narrative one, is much more similar to directing an immersive scene than it is to directing a film. At least it seems that way to me. Because a film and a proscenium-based stage both have a frame, right? And so the director dictates what the audience sees based on what they show in the frame. Whereas a VR piece or an immersive show, the director dictates what an audience member sees by what environment they surround them with. And then you let them look around wherever they want. So to choreograph and direct a virtual reality scene or a piece in its entirety was, was comfortable for me because I know how to make an immersive scene. I know how to make a room live as opposed to a frame. Mm-hmm. So what challenged you about film? And I guess I haven't really seen a lot of films based upon immersive work. Is the audience present in the film or the virtual reality? Uh, the audience presence um, in the film. No, it's a pretty straightforward feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, I mean, Dan went to film school uh, he went to NYU for film. Um, he's an incredible writer, but like also has experience on sets. Corey Framenlot, our DP, uh, is unbelievable. And, and so the two of them worked together and we had an amazing AD. We had a, a great film crew. I mean, everybody on the crew had to be a superstar because it was so, such a tight production. Um, but so you get a bunch of people who really know what they're doing and like, I, when it came to co-directing for the film specifically, Dan and I kind of split it up in ways where he directed almost all of the camera stuff and I directed a lot of the acting. And we both had our hands in the other pots for sure. But in terms of like what the core scene was, what the experience was, what's actually happening between these characters, that's a different conversation than like storyboarding the shots. So, yeah. But then for virtual reality, it seemed much more in your wheelhouse. Totally, totally. Yeah, that one I had a little bit heavier of a grip on. Um, <clears throat> Dan wrote the script for the experience. Uh, it was the only text that was spoken was was um, a monologue that Hamlet speaks. Um, but in terms of like designing 
and choreographing exactly how it's going to play out in the space, that was something that I was much more familiar with, comfortable with. Because, like, the question, the only camera question is where do you put it? Mm-hmm. And once you answer that, then it's like, okay, how does everything happen around it? So where did the ideas for doing something in VR come from? Um, <clears throat> ben Wygonik, our production designer... Um, and one of the producers on the project as well, uh, was working on, he was, I think he was technical directing a Google pop-up store that was happening. And he, I mean, he's got an amazing mind for making connections and knew, I mean, obviously that Google has their hand in VR. Daydream exists. They have just created this thing called the jump, which is a camera rig that utilizes 16 different GoPros all at the same time. Um, and so Google had made two of these jumps, these prototypes. And Ben was like, man, I wonder if we can get our hands on one. They'd be an amazing partner to have. So he, re- I mean, and one day the head of Google VR walked into the store that he was working on and Ben knew who he was. So he introduced himself and, and like brilliantly made this connection and started talking to this guy. And then we pitched this idea to them where we were like, could we maybe make this thing happen? We have an idea for a VR piece. We would love to use your product. And they were like, uh, we only have two of them. One of them is on loan somewhere. The other one's on loan to the National Theater in um, London. But like, that's not that far from Ireland. Why don't we connect you with them and see if they want to get involved? And so then they connected us with the National Theater's uh, Immersive Storytelling Studio, which is their studio specifically dedicated to storytelling in immersive ways, whether that is with VR or with immersive work, whatever it is, right? Uh, uh, expanding the boundaries of what an audience experience might be. Um, and so then they connected us with them. We pitched the idea to them, and they were amazing in providing a lot of production support for this whole VR experience, as well as like some sick costumes for the feature and some props we were able to use and stuff. Yeah, they were wonderful. So what were you hoping to accomplish with the virtual reality piece that would be different than the actual show? Um, I mean, again, it's a, it's a totally different project, right? So at that point, we were just kind of like, at least it seemed to me, we were snowballing ideas. We were ratcheting up the, the like, project's output as a whole. The feature is completely, completely separate from the VR and from the immersive show. The immersive show was completely separate from the feature and the VR. The VR is completely separate from both of them. It is another glance into this multifaceted world that we have built, which is Hamlet as it takes place inside this castle. And you can view that from all sorts of different lenses. You can view that from an immersive lens. You can view that from a feature film. You can view that from a VR experience. And so the idea exists separately from each of those things. Each of those things is just a way to record it or share it. And so the VR was another entrance point, is another entrance point for that world that already exists. It's a new vantage point. It's different than the feature. Same world, similar world new vantage point. Yeah, we, uh, at No Proscenium, we think a lot about the crossover between immersive theater and VR, and I know there's a lot of people in the immersive theater space who are very interested in getting their feet wet in mm. virtual reality. Mm. Do you have any lessons or takeaways that you can share? Um, 
do it. Just experiment. It like to buy a um, a consumer VR camera is not that expensive. You can buy the Ricoh Theta for like two hundred bucks, something like this. And that's just one. There are a lot of options, right? And <clears throat> depending how much you know the money you want to spend, you can get a lot of toys, and you can start to experiment. But it's very easy to like to get something and just start to play with it. So like if you have an idea, just try it. It's not that hard. Yeah. Have you been a fan of virtual reality experiences before you decided to make one of your own? Um, it, in, in varying ways, in varying levels of interest. A lot of the work that's happening in VR, I mean, it's starting to change, and it will definitely continue to change. A lot of the work that has happened already is not narrative is very much uh, experimental, or, or experiential, rather, in that it'll be a five-minute video of, like, deep-sea diving, or, like, inside an F-16, or parachuting, or, you know, wandering through the jungles of Guatemala. They're, like, there's no story that's happening. Rather, the VR has been used as a way to share something that you might not be able to experience in your daily life. However... There is so much food there in terms of a narrative and how to tell a story in a VR. How to tell a narrative VR. Um, it's like, yeah, there's, there's so much to experiment with there. It's like a whole new world of games that you can play, right? And, and so, like, what kinds... The question is, what kinds of stories are the most fruitful and the most important and the most necessary to tell using VR? What does telling a story with VR make possible that telling a story through a feature film isn't? Or through an immersive show, or through anything else? And then capitalizing on that. What's something that you can only tell with VR, or that you can tell best with VR? Yeah. Yeah, I think we live in very exciting times. <laughs> Me too! It's crazy out there! So, speaking of that, uh, what are you looking forward to in the new year? What's exciting to you? Um, I'm looking forward to a lot. I'm looking forward to uh, premiering Hamlet at film festivals. I'm really looking forward to sharing both the feature and the VR component of that over the coming year. Um, I'm looking forward to working on Roll Bones' next immersive show. Um, Any clues, hints you can, or do people just have to stay tuned? <laughs> uh, definitely stay tuned. Wow, I've no, this is, this is the first I've spoken to anyone about it. This is an, a no proscenium exclusive. All right. Um, it's an idea that, um, I'm working on also with Dan Hassey, who co-directed Hamlet. Uh, it is a new work that we are creating. It is a farce, and it will almost certainly um, happen in Brooklyn. Awesome. Yeah. And just kind of overall, uh, what other works have inspired your work? Hmm. Uh, uh, many, many. Um, one that provides me with pretty much endless inspiration is The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster, uh, a book that I read as a kid and have continued to reread. It is so 
rich with imagination and rule breaking and new worlds. Every time you turn a page, you're in a new world. Um, so I love that. I'm also, I've always uh, been fascinated by kind of Victorian England. So I love everything that takes place there. I really like Agatha Christie. I, uh, Sherlock Holmes is, is one of my favorite, you know, series is series of, of, you know, of any genre ever. Um, I like Robert Louis Stevenson, all of the stuff that takes place there. There's nothing like, you know, moodier or more dramatic than, you know, like 1860s foggy London. I love Poe. Yeah. Kind of a taste for the, the, the darker shadowier stuff. Do you think you'll ever actually go back to school <laughs> after having done all of this other stuff? That's a, a question with a very long answer. The short version is... Um, I don't feel like it right now. Well, you are very prolific. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank have you. your thumb in a lot of immersive pies, so... Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking been... to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so All much. Right. Once again, I want to thank Taylor Myers for being our guest on the show and for Catherine Yu for doing the duty of hosting that interview. If you want to find out more about Hamlet in the Golden Vale, you can go to, oh my God, you're going to be shocked, hamletinthegoldenvale.com. And for Roll the Bones, you're going to Roll the Bones Theater, spelled properly, the R-E, not the E-R, dot com. There you go. Uh, Check them out. Definitely check them out. I'm looking forward to seeing how this all pans out. Okay. Um, just a few quick notes before we head into the rest of the weekend here. Um, thank you all for your patience with the, the gaps in coverage in terms of the podcast past couple of months. Uh, the flu was not nice to me. And as you know, if you're regular listeners, you know, there was, there's just been a lot of drama, uh, a lot of drama, a lot of dream in the world. Um, and, uh, things aren't slowing down, which is great for immersive land, um, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going on over at South by, but holy moly, there is a bunch of stuff happening at South by Southwest. I mean, yeah, it's marketing stuff, but it's amazing marketing stuff. Um, they're building Sweetwater for Westworld. You know how like now it's become super easy to try and describe, you know, immersive theater to folks. You just go like, oh, it's like Westworld, but you know, you can't kill the actors or do any of the other stuff. Um, and some people are like totally disappointed by that. And those are the people you unfriend. Because um, <laughs> seriously, think about whether. Anyway, um, look, man, I'm not saying that. Um, no, no, let's not get into the morality of Westworld. Uh, as fun as that can be, let's just not do that right now. Let's do this instead. They're building Sweetwater <laughs> in the, you know, right outside of uh, Austin. And, uh, you know, we're, we're working on something related to that. Um, I'm not going to say what, no, we're not designing it. Um, that'd be weird. That'd be really weird. We couldn't anyway, let's not get into that either. Uh, 
I want to sit down and have like a four hour long conversation with you guys about everything that's going on right now. And I just don't have the time anymore. Unless, of course, you back that Patreon campaign. Anyway, um, South by Southwest is coming up. Uh, Candytopia has come back. Happy Place is coming back. Well, Happy Place is coming back and Candytopia is actually going to exist here in Los Angeles. Uh, well, in Santa Monica. Um, there's there's an array of stuff. Uh, you know, lo- loops that are closing, adventures that are beginning, the Kansas collection. Um, the, the gang from E3W Productions uh, and uh, In Another Room They've got a new show coming up. We're going to be talking with them very, very, very soon. It might even be like next week's episode, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. I may have misread my calendar earlier today. Um, there is this great wide world in front of us. And sometimes I know because we get down in the cuts, this is something interesting happened. Here we go. Here's a specific example. So someone came to the Immersive 101 that uh, I helped put on along with other members of Leia and Matt Quinn of Theater Asylum here in Los Angeles. And um, they got really spooked by the part when we talked about consent. Now, I want to be very clear that our taking the safety issues so seriously And I'd say today, you know, take a look at what we've been tweeting uh, uh, from or retweeting from Jessica up in San Francisco about the Compton Cafeteria show that's going on. Or even take a look at some of the stuff that's happening um, with the Julius Caesar in London. We take this stuff seriously, not because, well, let me point this out. My brain's going around. You know, their takeaway from it the, the thing that got spooked about was just this idea that like, oh, this, this couldn't be done, say, with high schoolers, which I think is like the furthest from the truth. Uh, not that they were wrong to perceive that, but that that meant we did a we had a failure in our messaging because we we're so focused on making this stuff right. I've seen great work where high school students are performing it down at the La Habra Theater Guild amazing work like really like better than some stuff i've seen by post-college people um i know that the albany park theater project in chicago worked with third rail projects and did an amazing piece a piece that some people say is like their favorite thing that third rail has worked on okay our emphasis on creating a safe environment for this work is not there to dissuade people. This isn't like all bungee jumping, right? You know, it's, this isn't like, you know, uh, walking on a tight beam coated in glass over a magma pit. I mean, not every time it can be. And when you do that, you got to make sure you have some safety harnesses on people. What we are so obsessed with right now is creating sort of the the DNA, the, the replicable code that will drive the way things work going forward so that people can take artistic risks. And by people, I mean both creators and audiences, because an artistic risk, for lack of a better term, 
is a spiritual risk. It's an emotional risk. It is an attempt to reach beyond the current confines of your condition and and become someone else, right? Somehow transform. These live immersive experiences, they won't always be engines of transformation. And I would seriously encourage you, if you haven't, go back and listen to the episode with Ida Benedetto that Catherine did, uh, which was, I think, uh, around December 22nd or so. <clears throat> listen to that one, because it's fantastic. Um, live immersive experiences, they're gonna be simulacrums of that. Training programs, if you will, for self-exploration, for self-improvement, for for a, a restructuring of the way that we interact, being more open, being more empathetic. Something that, you know, I know myself can work on, right? I mean, hi, I wouldn't be attracted to this material if I didn't have some kind of emotional need to be part of it. Ooh, no surprise. Not hiding anything here. Making sure that people have this top of mind, the ultimate goals of the form, if you will. Eh, not goals, let's call them predispositions. That's what we want to impress upon people when we talk about consent and safety, All right? I think there is something to this work which is very powerful and could be used as a force for good for as a curative to the disconnection that social media, so ironic what I did at the top of the show, has created for us, right? The old joke about social media was that no one knows if you're a dog on the internet. Well, no one knows if you're a bot, no one knows if you're a paid troll. People don't trust what they see with their own eyes anymore, all right? People don't trust things that are mediated. We could go on at length about how every time there's a national tragedy, people cart out the idea of crisis actors. <clears throat> but I don't want to dig that up right now. Aside from addressing this part of it, our world is so mediated that a lot of people, not a plurality of people, but a lot of people have internalized that it's mediated and no longer trust that events that happen aren't somehow a construct, that things aren't being manipulated left and right. I'm pausing because I understand where that intuition, that perception comes from. And it doesn't necessarily come from a really healthy place. And it's not something that can be disentangled through attack. There's no, there's no assertive way to untangle the knot if someone firmly believes that our mediated world is a total, total, total fabrication and lie. In part because there's, there's aspects to what they're perceiving which are not wrong. 
things that are mediated are edited. They're angled. And there's two things we can do to address that. One, we can teach media literacy and give people the tools to analyze so they understand how that works and how the biases actually work. And the other thing we can do, the thing that we specifically as a community can do, is work on this form which engages the whole person and calls upon people who are both performing and creating and participating to be present and to ground themselves in their awareness, where they are, what they are doing. Always comes after Star Wars. This is what I think is part of what lies at the heart of what makes a lot of what's here immersive so important. Now, I'm not saying that it is inherently a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it's a powerful thing. And our exploration of this world needs to respect that power. All right, I got to go. I'd like to stay. Uh, If you like this sort of part of the show, um, and want more of it, there might be an outlet for that. Um, Tell me about it. Reach out to me, noah at nopersinium.com. I take a long time to get back to everything these days. I apologize for that. Um, I'll probably be saying that for the next 10 years of my life. Um, there's so much more we want to do, uh, and hopefully, uh, we'll get to do it before the year is through. Let's hook you up with a few things. Twitter at no persinium, Instagram at no underscore persinium, Facebook, no persinium, everything immersive.com leads to the Facebook group, no persinium.com, which I never mentioned. <laughs> Because I just assume you know, that's the website where the newswire and the reviews and the features, and there's so much good work this week from the team. I should really be pushing that out there. And I forget. Um, Please go there. Check it out. Share, 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 share. Share the content. If you're a fan of this stuff, please share the content. Um, It really makes a difference. It increases the footprint. we're going hard on the Patreon, patreon.com slash next month. More on that soon. Credits for the show. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Catherine, to Jessica, and to Anthony for working so hard to keep the website, the newsletters, and the social media rocking and rolling. Gang, uh, I'm going to be way more active uh, now that I'm healthy again. That's number one. Number two. The music for this show is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society here in Los Angeles. Number three, our sustaining Patreon backers, the guys who pay the bills, the bills which are always going up, are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, Yan Budman, Arthur Tubman, Ari Herstan, and the one and only Lonnie Hansen. Folks, that's the show. More next week. And um, until then, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>